Welcome to the first episode of season six of the Energy Thinks podcast, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. On this new season, I'm sitting down with leaders in and around oil and gas to look at these competing trends we're all dealing with, ESG, anti-woke capitalism, but I really want to focus on what's coming around the corner. And if there's a sub-theme, it's people I want to talk to about things that I'm a little bit stuck on. And I think that is really core to the conversation that I had today. I spoke with Roger Pilkey. He's professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado at Boulder. He received his BA in mathematics, his MA in public policy, and his PhD in political science, all from the University of Colorado at Boulder. When not teaching, he writes the Honest Broker newsletter, which you can find on Substack, and I highly recommend it. I only pay for two subscriptions currently on Substack, and the Honest Broker is one of them. He also has a podcast, and you'll hear we talk a little bit about his book by the same name as well. He has many academic and research fellowships, including the Institute of Energy Economics in Japan, the Breakthrough Institute, and the Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences. You can learn more about Roger's biography in our show notes. I think you're really going to enjoy my conversation today with Roger Pilkey. Roger, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Things podcast. My pleasure. Great to be here. When I first met you, I was a controversial character because I was an environmentalist from Boulder running the Colorado Oil and Gas Association. But interestingly, you were an infinitely more controversial character. And I have always had enormous respect for the trajectory you've been on professionally because I think like me, you don't limit yourself to the political orthodoxies. And that makes you a really valuable thought partner. And so I'm hoping we can open up today by talking a little bit about your philosophy of when you choose to engage in something and not engage with a focus on this world that you and I overlap in the energy and climate space. Yeah, well, you know, it's a great question. And, you know, it's funny being tagged as being controversial because I I have colleagues and friends who would like to themselves be seen as controversial and and you know I'm the I'm the the non-controversial part of that crowd my experience in energy and climate I mean it goes back a long time now and it, it goes back to when it was boring I started working on climate issues in the early 1990s I got a postdoc with a guy named Mickey Glance at the National Center for Atmospheric Research and I was working on extreme weather floods and hurricanes in particular and at the time they were just floods and hurricanes it was, you know, they were, they were quote unquote, natural disasters, focus was on forecast evacuations. And one day, my boss, Mickey Glance, who's, who's still hanging around Boulder, he brought in a Newsweek cover and it said, blizzards, floods and hurricanes blame global warming. And he said to me, hey, this looks interesting. Why don't you look at that? And so that was kind of a fateful moment in my, my career. And, you know, I came to the climate issue kind of wrong way around. I came to it from adaptation, from extreme weather events, and only got into the energy policy stuff a little bit later. And so when the climate movement hit, you know, really not until, you know, Al Gore's movie, I had substantial experience in extreme weather and climate. And all along the way, my views have been, you know, highly compatible, mainstream, almost ridiculously so with the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So my view is that the controversial issues arose when the real world departed from 
kind of mainstream science. And I kind of stuck there and didn't go along. So so I don't actually view anything that I've written or done, my period research, as particularly outrageous or you know out of the mainstream. It's just in the public debate hasn't always been widely accepted. It's funny that I like how you described starting like your work was boring. You started at NCAR. I started at the U.S. Geologic Survey doing these like marine cruises to look at soil cores for like historic climate, you know, as as you can see it in like these cores, like the most boring thing. Like who knew that that would be, uh, you know, we were like, what is this thing we're doing? It was before Al Gore's movie. Um, And then then here we are in the middle of just like this, this like iconic culture war topic. And you you find yourself even today in, in hot water, regularly when you're not towing the the climate line and and I hear like you're using different language than me which I like which is you know like the mainstream conversation moved on but the science stayed where it was I think of you as a climate hawk like when I read your work you are advocating action and a, a, a certain amount of urgency tell me a little bit about and tell our audience a little bit about especially those who aren't familiar with the work that has gotten you into hot water <laughs> what like what gets you in hot water and why do you keep talking about it why do you think it's important yeah i mean it's a good question you know i think you know pretty much anything i say gets me in hot water at this point because at some point and and you know this you go from being kind of an obscure person with some you know minor expertise and then you become kind of a public intellectual and associated with the position and and you know one of the things that's most interesting for me over the years and i'm very familiar with it now is people try to create caricature of you and your views because it's a lot easier to debate a caricature than a than a real person with nuance views. But I mean, early on, some of the stuff that people push back against um, was my my work on extreme weather and climate. And it's, it's, again, it's squarely in line with the IPCC. My first, you know, big paper that made a big splash on research was on hurricanes. And it documented quantitatively and with evidence, if you notice this incredible rising trend of economic costs of disasters, it's actually not a change in hurricanes that's causing that it's more people more property more wealth i actually I, I i won the roger rovell award from the national academy of sciences one month before al gore's movie came out with a hurricane in the smokestack and i i went from being kind of a young academic getting all sorts of awards and plaudits to being a bad guy and you know the turning point was al gore's movie mm-hmm. where he pivoted to focus on hurricane katrina as evidence of climate change and for me, it was interesting because the science didn't change and it still hasn't changed. I mean, there's there's no upwards trend in extreme hurricanes, you know, either you know normal hurricanes or the most powerful hurricanes hitting the U.S. or globally. And people don't like to hear that. And I wrote about this in one of my books. I say, you know, it's, at some point you have to decide as, a, as an academic when your area of research becomes politically significant or notable and politicians are misrepresenting what the evidence says we can either choose to stay silent because it's convenient politically, or we can say, no, no, here's what the evidence actually shows. And I remember it was very clearly, it was during one of Barack Obama's radio addresses. And, you know, I voted for Barack Obama twice. I'd probably vote for him again if he could run. And, you know, I, I thought he was great. But he, he said some very false things about increasing hurricanes and floods. And this was the early years of, of blogging and, you know, being out in public. And so I called him out on it. It's not my political interest to call out Barack Obama, but my 
my research, the research that I, you know, was a global expert in was being misrepresented. And, you know, once you cross the, the Rubicon, so to speak, and you get out there, then you've made a decision. And so, you know, for me, I, very quickly, I realized that it wasn't the substance of the material that's a, as important as the consequences to, you know, politics and policy preferences out there that that people really react to. So if they perceive that the science doesn't support you know, what they're advocating for, they'll come after an individual. And so, you know, I, I saw that a lot. You know, more recently, I get, I get actually, you know, online, I get more criticism from people opposed to climate action than people who support climate action these days. I think net zero makes a lot of sense. Um, I've written a lot about it. I've done a lot of energy policy work. And I do think climate change is real and serious. And so some people who like my disasters work, they say, well, but I don't like this other work that you have. And, you know, my response is, you know, it's tough. It's the evidence says what it says. I think it's why I've been so excited to talk to you about it, because in many ways, we're both caught caught in the middle. It makes it sound negative. Actually, we like we choose to participate in the middle where where awesome progress will be made, I would like to think. And I do want to just point out, I think you were referencing your book, The Honest Broker, which we will list in the show notes, because it is it's something I keep handy. I have it dog-eared and marked up. The idea, because we always find ourselves, if if we're, we're sort of these like public-y thought figures of having to make these decisions about when to advocate, when to, when to push back, when to not push back. And I think the honest broker finds it gives a really nice framework for thinking methodically about those different roles and how to play them. And I'm, I'm not an academic, but I still find myself having to make those decisions. Like, is this the time to stand up? Is this the time to push back? Anything else you want to say about the honest broker? Yeah, let me say, I mean, on that point, I mean, I think it's a, it should be in principle, it should be a lot easier for academics who have tenure to be able to go out and say what they think and just call it like they see it. And I can see, you know, people who, who have an employer or they have a, you know, they don't have a lifetime guaranteed contract, you know, it, it, the calculus can be a little bit more vexing. And so one of the things I didn't quite understand early in my career is that, you know, why is it that there's so few academics who actually go out and defend what they think and, you know, make claims? Tenure offers a degree of career protection, but there are enormous social pressures in the academic community people want to be seen as being affiliated with a particular political view or their quote unquote tribe. And so there's a lot of pressure not to do the things that we're actually hired to do in academia. And so it's very easy. You know, I, I have a position of enormous privilege and it's difficult for younger scholars. If I can't go out and call things like I see it, I don't think anybody can because, you know, it's so, I mean, I see it as it's, it's, it's my job responsibility to do that. There's an enormous disincentive to push against the political orthodoxies on either side. There's almost no upside other than than like giving yourself a pep talk that you have a spine. <laughs> so it's a really it's a really challenging place to be. And I, I want to pull on that thread a little bit more with you because, of course, I want to interject more science. And I, I'm one who said, for example, in the many years I've spent defending fracking, you know, if the oil and gas industry is going to rely on the science to, to demonstrate that fracking can be done safely, we also have to follow the science on climate change. You know, I, I, I stick with that same sort of, you know, follow the science logic. I often get critiqued for being too incremental. So I, in my work with the oil and gas, 
podcast industry, I am very much about just like how much change can we tolerate as an industry over time? And then within the industry for not pushing back enough against uh, those who, who don't think, for example, oil and gas deserves to play a role in addressing climate change. And so I really like, I work in a very small, pragmatic, incremental space. And I've written all my books in 20 minute increments. Like I'm a big believer in incremental progress. I'm curious about what, like, where do you land on incremental progress versus bit making big, bold progress? Like what's your approach to that kind of thing? Yeah, it, I mean, this is this is a, a great question, and it's core to a lot of policy disputes. When I was getting my master's degree um, at CU Boulder, my work was on space policy. I worked with a guy named Rad Byerly, um, who passed away about seven years ago. He's the one that took me to Washington to the House Science Committee. And, and the big debate in space policy at the time was, well, but we want to go to Mars. But we're doing all this incremental stuff, like, you know, we do the space shuttle and then we're going to build a space station. And so there was a debate in space policy over what was called non-incremental policymaking. Can we just make a big commitment and get it done? And, and I see this, this is kind of a fantasy world for people who aren't particularly familiar with democracy or politics <laughs> as it actually happens in the real world. Is, is, you know, number one, it doesn't happen that way. All progress is incremental. In particularly in, in democratic systems, and sometimes it's incremental backwards and <laughs> sometimes it's incremental forward. But but that's the nature of decision making. So if you look at things like you know, big things we've accomplished, like advancing human lifespans or feeding people around the world, gains in agricultural productivity and gains in public health are all incremental. And you know, every once in a while there's a punctuated equilibrium where you get, you know, you get vaccines or you get a breakthrough. But those are, are the exception, not the rule. The rule is, you know, it's like Edward Deming sort of decision-making, like every little successive increment you do better, if you actually add that up over years, decades, better part of a century, you will have made enormous progress. And this gets to, you know, one of the, we, we've talked about this before, but one of the issues is the scale of the global energy economy is so massive that I don't even know what the right metaphor. It's not like turning around a, a, a battleship or something like that. It's bigger than that. It's and so it's important for people to understand, like, you know, if the, if the phrase just stop oil, it's a great slogan. But that doesn't, I mean, that's that has no connection to what happens in the real world. And so the sooner my view is that the direction of travel and making progress in that direction is far more important than keeping your eyes focused on you know the last ton of CO2 or, or where we'll be in 2050 or 2080. Because unless we can start down this path of incrementalism, we're not going to make any progress. So, you know, it's probably my training in political science and my work in Washington and just being able to study and observe policymaking out in the real world is is that's how it happens. And so I and I know there's, you know, I hear this, you know, almost every day online. There's there's people who have enormous frustration that we can't, you know, just stop fossil fuels today or tomorrow or pass a law. And realizing scale and the difficulties of change is really, really, I think, challenging for people who have an expectation that it's it's just, you know, push the easy button and get it done. 
Yeah. Uh, and you have such a great post, which we'll also link to in the show notes. I think it's called Just Stop Oil on, or maybe why we can't just stop oil on Substack. So I'll link to that. It's a it's a great piece on that. So let's let's talk about why we can't just stop oil. So this podcast is for oil and gas leaders. And I'm curious about what you feel like, where you see from your, you don't engage particularly directly with the oil and gas industry, but you have this macro understanding of how complex decarbonizing the energy system is going to be. And we're trying to think about very realistic, pragmatic solutions that we call real sustainability. What do you think about the role of oil and gas companies? Like, what do you think they should be doing? What do you think they should not be doing? What do you think they're getting wrong? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a big question. I mean, the first thing, and this is no surprise to people in the oil and gas industry, but the first thing people generally should understand is that the world still gets 80 to 85% of its of its energy services from fossil fuels. And that's that's just the reality of where we're starting. And so the world needs fossil fuel, the whole fossil fuel industry from producers to you know everyone to be involved if we are going to transition. And, and let me say, it should be obvious that if you're burning stuff, it's it's probably not the best way to produce energy if you're for you know eight ten billion people for a lot of reasons not just the the climate reasons and so I mean I guess for oil and gas industry there are these competing tensions being one of the largest industries in the world and making a lot of money but also committing to really the promise of your core expertise and functions in the economy going away this century that doesn't mean the businesses have to go away. And so I do think there are mixed messages that I see out there from oil and gas leaders, from outright opposition to the idea of of net zero policies, to commitments that, yeah, we want to be part of the energy transition. I've been around long enough to know when BP was, you know, beyond petroleum. So I do think, and this this is a larger critique of the climate movement more generally, is I think the focus on emissions, and I've said this for a long time, and this gets me in trouble, but I think that's a distraction. If we want to get to net zero carbon dioxide, that means net zero fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a reason why governments around the world want to talk about reducing emissions, not reducing fossil fuel consumption, because emissions are a, a byproduct. They're an outcome. And policy and decision-making is not very good at managing outcomes. We're good at, at, at managing inputs. And so if there was, I mean, we see evidence of this in some places like Germany has, you know, and in Europe are talking about a coal phase out, but, you know, there's a reason why the world hasn't agreed to a coal phase out treaty or or agreement. I mean, because, you know, some, some countries like China and India in particular, aren't ready to make those sort of commitments. And so my view is, is if industry would take the lead and say, all right, we're going to take, we're going to take governments and, you know, the political movement seriously around the world. Let's let's talk about a fossil fuel phase out. And guess what? We're the best positioned people in the world to help you do that. I think that there's too much too much gamesmanship by governments, you know, by a lot of climate hawks, you know, by industry in hiding behind silly things like like emissions reduction targets, like ESG targets, monitoring the emissions of individual companies, the different types of emissions depending on whether you produce them or your customers produce them or the people that use your products use them. So a little bit more reality in the debate wherever it comes from would be great and I just think it would be it would turn the climate debate on its head if oil and gas executives said all right we hear you we're taking you seriously 
but this emissions stuff is, you know, you, that's why you're getting all these games being played out there with, you know, scoring emissions and things like that. If you're serious about phasing out fossil fuels, we'll help you. But let's let's get targets and timetables. So when when is that last coal plant going to be closed? When are we going to have fully mitigated or be off of natural gas? Petrol, I mean, it, I can envision coal going away. I think everybody can pretty straightforward, even in places like China and India. Natural gas is a tough one. Petroleum is, I'm, I'm not a technical expert, but I can see that that's a really, really tough one. So we don't have all the technologies we need. And so the most important thing, I think, for the debate and for progress would be for oil and gas to take seriously the commitments, which aren't emissions reductions commitments. It's just, all right, we're getting rid of fossil fuels sometime this century. That's really interesting. A lot of the work that I do, I talk with with the industry about this is a group of people who love to solve the world's biggest problems. And in the absence of political polarization around climate, I think the oil and gas industry would default to taking a leadership role. And so it's interesting when, and this is a critique I have of the climate movement, is that there is at this moment more commitment to the fight and to having a villain than there is to having solutions. That said, the industry plays its role well sometimes as a villain. (laughs) I have a lot of suggestions about how we could do better about that. Do you have any other thoughts about, I think think you've phrased it very articulately, like the industry needs to say like, okay, you're serious, like let's do this. And it's going to require trade-offs. It's going to require investments. It's going to require partnerships. And it's going to require like a real seat at the table. Anything else you see that could help de-escalate this polarization where so many... I think well-meaning climate activists say there is no role for the oil and gas industry here. Like by definition, they cannot participate. That's a problem that I'm struggling to overcome. I don't know if those folks have to just be left in the past or if there's a venue for evolving their thinking. Like you cannot leave all these resources off the table and solve climate at scale in time. Any thoughts about that? I mean, this is this is a great point. And you know, I wish I had, I wish I had better thoughts on this. Any issue gets polarized because polarization benefits the participants. And I've long thought that the most you know, strident climate hawks and the most strident climate deniers are actually on the same side. They love each other. They're in an embrace. They get to criticize each other. They get a lot of attention. I mean, we have some problems with broken institutions in the United States. The media is broken. It likes, you know, the most extreme versions of pretty much everything. And, at you know, at some point, you go back far enough in the public opinion polls, climate change was not, you know, what we would call a wedge issue. And, you know, same thing, if you go back before climate change, we had ozone depletion. And yeah, there was a little industry environmentalist gnashing of teeth, kind of like you see, but it wasn't it wasn't like people went to the polls and said, oh my gosh, I'm 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 an ozone voter. And climate, for a lot of reasons, and we can explain them, it has been very appealing to the left and the right in the United States as a wedge issue, quite apart from the policy issues associated with climate change, but because it motivates base voters in a in a way that you know other things don't. And the reality is the political reality is that if we are going to decarbonize the the global economy, it's going to be an incremental long slog that'll take place through most of the century. And that means we need a political support for action over that same time period. One party is not going to, in one country, is not going to make that happen. And I I hear it's more quiet than, than out loud, but I do hear from a lot of Republicans in particular that, all right, we're on board with this, 
it's outrageous that we keep getting beat up as being the villain, for example. Um, I did a podcast with Representative Dan Crenshaw from Texas recently. It was interesting because we went back and forth between completely rational, reasonable discussions of energy and, and policy to kind of more like an irate, I won't say rage, but anger at the political overlay that's on that. So until we have leaders, and I'm and by leaders, I mean leaders in the climate sciences and the climate movement on the Republican side that want policy to happen as being more important than the short-term political gain, you know, I think this polarization is just going to continue. You know, just as we're recording this, there's a huge debate that's broken out in recent weeks in the United Kingdom over net zero policies. The real world answer is if we can't come up with policies that people like on electoral timescales, so in the U.S., two, four, and six years across parties, then we're not going to make decade-long progress. So I am hopeful that we will have better leadership. But you know, for me, we experts, academics can only do what we can do in our community. And one of my great frustrations and disappointments is that we in academia have emulated kind of the worst instincts that we see of, you know, members of Congress and leading Republicans and leading Democrats. We like the fight. We like we like the polarization. So I am in conversations with people like you, and we've talked about this before, where we say, well, polarization is is a bad thing. We got to, you know, de-escalate. My colleague, Matt Burgess here at CU, you know, he's focused on, on depolarizing. But I think we also have to acknowledge the reality is that people like polarization these days. And it's, it's, it's a, part of our politics. And so when we say, let's get rid of polarization or reduce it, there's a sizable and powerful contingent that says, you know, why would we ever do that? Right. That's where all the fun is. As you described that, I was imagining like, like, like this mixed martial arts or world wrestling federation like locked in an embrace. And then there's like all those geeks around the edge, like with our computers, like trying to blog about pra- pragmatic incremental progress. And it's like, why would anyone watch us? Like all the fun stuff is happening in the ring. We're not even watching us. We're watching them right. too. <laughs> I tell my students that and in my energy policy classes that, that energy policy is a lot like the NFL. Like, like everybody has their favorite team. You know, like I'm team wind, I'm team solar, I'm for carbon capture, I'm nuclear. And, and they just cheerlead for their team. And, you know, if you go online and Twitter, you'll see, you know, there's the nuclear bros and there's the 100%, you know, wind, water and solar. And it's, it's, it's little more than cheerleading for a favorite team. So I, you know, they should have helmets on and logos, nuclear power plant and battle it out. And, and I, for my students, I tell them, you know, I hope, you know, by the time you're, I don't care what you think about these different energy technologies, but I hope you realize that in the real world, that sort of NFL, WWF approach to energy policy is never going to work as much right. fun as it might be. No. Yeah. And if you, and if you commit to it, like if you're a climate hawk and you think we need to address climate and you commit to WWF, you are, you are bypassing the opportunity to actually make progress. And that's like the really interesting challenge. Okay, so I'm going to take us back to the boring sideline where we have our, our computers and yep, our science. Yep. And, and I'm asking you about something that I fret about and I'd like to get your brain on. So even in where you and I both sit in Colorado, but in other places as well, I think well-meaning policymakers are making decisions now that are going to break the energy system. I think we're going to continue to see more spiking prices, rolling blackouts. And in some ways, like those of us who've been 
advocating for just more pragmatic, more trade-offs, more, more focus on reliability and cost. You know, there's a lot of people who, who are sort of sitting by like, wait, like waiting. So they can say, I told you so, but in my experience, there is never an, I told you so moment, like the public bank blames the energy companies. And so I'm, I'm curious, it's very difficult as an advocate for industry to figure out how to engage in, in an effective way to say like, we need to make better better decisions with an emphasis on reliability and costs and trade-offs. And we can do that while addressing climate, but we always get accused of defending the status quo. Like, Oh, you're just defending natural gas. You're, you're, you know, uninvent, not inventive enough about the future. Do you see any openings? Do you see any better tactics? What are the ways in very pragmatic ways we can engage with policymakers? Can we prevent, or are we just going to break, start breaking stuff? Yeah. Well, there's a couple things to say. One is that democracy has a pretty sharp feedback mechanism. And and in the US, for better or worse, and whether it's meaningful or not, you know, $4 a gallon gasoline is something that tends to get the president's attention, Democrat or Republican. Maybe not so much for my generation, but certainly for my parents' generation and the baby boomers, they keep an eyeball on the gas prices when they're driving around town and, you know, they'll drive across town to save six cents or something like that. So if things start breaking and if energy prices go up appreciably and people notice it or the lights go out, there's going to be, you know, a pretty strong feedback there. And I think we already see that with President Biden. My hope is that if things start breaking because of unreliable energy from intermittent sources or, you know, whatever it happens to be, extreme weather events or, you know, fires, that there's not too much suffering or harm to people. And they say, oh, well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. What I haven't seen, and maybe it's out there and I just haven't seen it, but I'm out there too, and I I haven't seen it, are are well-crafted, understandable alternatives that come from the oil and gas industry. So, so we have the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, and I, I, when it was proposed, I said, you know, I support it. I think it's a great experiment. And I also said, I think it's going to fail miserably. I don't think that the, the we're going to see anything close to whatever, 35, 37, 42% emissions reductions by 2030, because, you know, the, the IRA was based on this fanciful spreadsheet modeling that assumes everything that's challenging miraculously happens, like, you know, connecting to the grid and transmission and things like that. But what I haven't seen, all right, so if not this IRA. So then what? what? How do we maintain security of supply, cost containment, get away from supply chains that rely on either you know, slave labor or dodgy regimes in faraway places? I want to see it. What's the option? Policymakers don't need arguments. I mean, they can, they can make an argument for pretty much anything and make it sound reasonable to voters. They need options. What I would love to see experts, and I mean, I'm sure there's no place you can go where that has the expertise in in energy than the oil and gas industry. Please bring us, you know, if if you think things are going to break, let's have some options. How, how would we do things differently? And again, that has to start at this place where we say, all right, we're taking this commitment to you know net zero emissions, but you know that means net zero fossil fuels. We're taking it seriously. Here's how we'd do it if we were in charge. And I haven't seen that. I would love to see that. So yes, there will be opportunities where things break and whether it's a large scale blackout or unsustainable prices, but those those are the moments where you want to have options. And somebody says, okay, things broke. That's, that's good evidence. Things aren't working what we're doing. Here's how we would do it differently. And I honestly don't have that answer out there. I mean, there's simple things that professors can come up with, but I'd love to see a, a much more 
technical, realistic approach to, to net zero from the, the oil and gas industry. That's great. And it, it reinforces this idea of staying in the incremental, pragmatic, engaged, proactive space. And in some ways, not waiting to celebrate when things break, but being ready for the opportunity that that creates. Like Russia's invasion of Ukraine created a real opportunity for the U.S. oil and gas industry. And I think they kind of took it and mostly squandered it. Um, And I think that those opportunities are really important. So let's pull on this idea a little bit. You gave us your two cents about the IRA. I vacillate between being wildly optimistic that what the world's going to reach net zero by 2050 because, you know, we're ingenious and and we solve big problems. Uh, and then just thinking like this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of, like we're, we're making no progress. So I'm curious, where do you land? What's your what do you think is a realistic trajectory for the world to address climate? And is it about reducing emissions or is it going to be about better adaption and better resilience and making sure that we minimize human suffering and that we're, we could be extraordinarily good at that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing for people to understand, and I think they get a sense of this is that the targets that are at the center of climate policy discussions. So 2050, two degrees Celsius, 1.5 degrees Celsius. These are these are all very round numbers and they they have really no connection to the real world. They were just put out there because in the, the temperature targets, you know, they go back to a German advisory committee in the 1980s. And if you take it, you know, literally we're well past those targets already, 2050 or 2030, they're end of decades sort of thing. I, I update a, a figure I produce every year and people seem to, to understand it where I just say, all right, we're consuming 600 exajoules about a fossil fuels a year. Um, if we wanted that to go to zero or, you know, mitigate some portion of that, how much would we have to you know, basically shut down every year. And it turns out it's it's basically, you know, and you can vary the assumptions it's between, you know, one and, and two power plants per day that we have to shut down. And we're not doing that, obviously, right now. So there, I think there is this issue that the targets we set are determined politically, but the decisions we take are, are, are policy decisions. I cannot do the math to get to net zero by 2050 if the world were to say, all right, we're going to commit to deploying a nuclear power plant a day, maybe two, somewhere in the world, and retiring a, you know, an equivalent amount of fossil fuel production, yeah, mathematically, you can make that work. The world is not going to do that. So if you also you know, go through those mathematical exercises, net zero by 2100 you know, seems to me within the realm of plausibility based on what we know now. But far more important than the end date is the incremental progress from today, tomorrow to next year and the year after. And it's a little bit, imagine like it's 1920, 1923, and you and I are, are doing our podcast then. And we say, all right, well, what's an appropriate target for human lifespan in a in hundred years? And we could sure talk about it, you know, well, you know, I think 60 years, that would be a huge improvement. You might say, well, why not 120? But it's really like, you know, we're talking about a future that we don't even know how it's going to evolve. So for me, it's much more important and I use in my book, The Climate Fix, this this technical term called decarbonization, but it's a reduction in carbon dioxide per unit of GDP. And you can just do the math and say, well, what does that have to be to hit, you know, any target, you know, pick 2050, 2075, whatever. And we need to figure out how do we modulate the rate of decarbonization? And the way for people to think about that, it's like agricultural productivity, right? Agricultural productivity is a technical term, but we know, you know, you're getting more bushels of corn per acre, 
with the same inputs, then, you know, we must be doing something right because we're making more food. And this is like, how do we get more economic activity with less fossil fuel consumption? The simple math is that decarbonization rates have to be higher than GDP growth if you want to see emissions go down eventually. And that, that rate will tell us, you know, how fast we can go. So right now we're basically incapable of hitting any target. Mm-hmm. because we, we aren't reducing CO2 emissions per unit of GDP nearly fast enough. So this is where I would love to see some real-world experiments you know, in countries or jurisdictions on rapidly accelerating decarbonization. It's one thing for Denmark to do something or, you know, British Columbia, but I'm talking, you know, let's, let's see California or Texas or Germany, or let's see, let's see big places with big economies. And until we get serious about the direction of travel and how we measure it, I think we're going to see a lot more of these games. And then when, when it turns out year after year, oh, emissions didn't go down, people express frustration. But it's because, you know, we have this huge control panel with all these knobs and, you know, the knob we use mostly is just talking. So (laughs) I would love to see a a greater commitment to the sort of technological deployment and innovation that's needed to make this sort of progress. We have this big control panel, but we just keep turning up the volume on the WWE. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Exactly. So last question for you and feel free to weave anything in it that I should have asked you, but didn't. What are you most optimistic about? You know, I am lucky being in the profession that I am because I get to hang out with 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds all the time in the classroom. I will say, you know, there are some students who come in and they have a lot of anxiety and they're fearful about the world. But I'm optimistic because, you know, when I spend time with them and we go through exercises, you know, when I have a spreadsheet exercises, you know, I want you to track all of your energy consumption not just, you know, electricity, but, you know, you get in your car, oh, you just bought some new clothes, you know, f- you know, for a week and then report on it next week. And the other thing is I want you to 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 track your your economics. You know, they don't have to tell me what it is, but how much how much do you spend? You know, in Colorado, you know, if they're out of state, they're already, you know, spending, you know, 50,000 a year or something like that. And then we compare that to to people around the world. And the students are blown away completely by how much they consume in terms of energy and how fantastically wealthy we happen to be um, in this part of the world. Even students who come from, you know, poor families are fantastically rich compared to a lot of people in the rest of the world. And so for students, having that eye-opening moment where they start to realize scale and, you know, we, we all swim in this world where energy is all around us and it's to the point, and I tell this to my students, we don't even see it anymore. You don't even know the world you inhabit. And so it makes me optimistic when they, you know, it's, I don't know, I imagine like they're, you know, they're getting flushed out of the matrix bubble and, you know, they you know, <laughs> welcome to the real world. And, and once they have an appreciation for kind of like the, 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 the simple mathematics of energy and the economy, for me, then they get a lot more pragmatic and realistic. And it makes me think that, that you know, there, there is hope for, you know, the next generation to not repeat the, the things that our generation did, which is the polarization and, and turning energy into a cartoon character rather than it's like feeding the world or it's like public health. We need, all, you know, all hands on deck. And if we all work together, you know, you're not going to be able to, to say what human lifespan is going to be in 100 years, but we can sure make progress along the way. So I, I, you know, the young people give me a lot of optimism that it's all not going to be 
left-right politics. It's not like sloganeering or, you know, Twitter wars, but there's real serious people out there that are doing good work. And I know that, you know, there's already people from our Gen X should be ruling the world, but, you know, there's already people <laughs> out there with that sort of expertise. But I do think that this avalanche of of hot politics of climate has kind of washed over our ability to be pragmatic. So, so I am optimistic for the next generation, even with the climate angst that a lot of young people have that, you know, once they take a moment to sit down and, and become educated, then, you know, I think there's a much better vision of how this might play out in the future. Well, Roger, this conversation exceeded all my expectations, which were very high. So thank you so much for joining me today on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thanks for having me. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Roger for taking time for joining me. There was a lot I found interesting. This really scratched a lot of intellectual itches I had, things I've been wanting to run by Roger for a while. But one of the things that was surprising me was this idea that there is something called non-incremental policymaking. Never heard of that. Glad to hear it's not a real thing. It doesn't exist in the real world since all of us are in the business of trying to get things done in a pragmatic and incremental way. I'd like to hear what you thought. So please reach out to us. You can reach us at energythinks.com. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and rate this podcast. It helps other people find us. I would like to thank my colleague, Adon Rubio, who makes all things podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health. <laughs>